0: Carlos Garcia, folks. Yeah. If you have your Bibles, please turn them in them to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following. Welcome everyone here. Happy 40th. Yes, absolutely. And I want to uh, send a special uh, shout out to Tim Frakes, who's um, one of our representatives from Monica Bible Church and the Armed Forces, and he's uh, tuning in today. So good to see you, Tim. Keep rocking down there. We're excited for you. Yeah, proud of you. Absolutely. As you turn into Hebrews chapter 12, this is kind of like the, this is, this is not kind of, it is. The week before the last time that we're going to be in Hebrews has been our summer series. Um, The author of Hebrews the whole time has been going through and helping his Jewish audience who've accepted Jesus as their Savior say, hold on to Jesus. Don't, Don't give up on holding on to Jesus. Keep holding on to Jesus. Don't fall away from your faith. It's super easy to fall away from your faith. Don't do it. And he keeps on, he's pulling, he's holding on to them all the way through. Um, and then he gets to chapter 12, and he stops looking at the past, at the historical past of Israel, and the religious past of Israel, and he says, okay, now you've got all the information. What are you going to do with it? You're kind of at a crossroads. What, what are you going to do with the information that I've just given you? You're, you're, you've come to two mountains. Which one are you going to decide to be consumed by? So if, you, if you've got your Bibles, or if you don't, if you could tur- stand as we, tur- as we read from chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews beginning in verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that could be touched and is burning with fire, to darkness, to gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded, that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear, but you You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. One of the things that's so cool about um, celebrating 40 years is you get the chance to look back and see some of the cool things God did. One of the the cool things God did 20 years ago um, was he had a couple of people at our church who were involved with Christian education say, we really should have this thing for like a day camp. And so this was an idea that I thought was a terrible idea. I didn't want to do it. I thought it was, I didn't want to involve the high schoolers in it when I was working with 360, but we decided to do it anyway for one year. It was called Spy Kids. And then all of a sudden Spy Kids became something that we saw this last year where 600 kids like, signed up for this thing. I'm sure the parents did. So signed up for it, like, and it got sold out in, like, three weeks. 600 kids hearing the gospel. And, and, and the, at the beginning of Spy Kids Every Day, we start with a song by these guys. Um, from For 19 out of the 20 years, for 19 out of the 20 years, we, we actually have, we, we've used Supertone Strikes Back as the song that, that, basically brings the stoke for kids. And and it it just starts off and it's like just high level. Supertones, they're a Christian band from like late 90s, early 2000s. Um, It's kind of like, it's ska music, which is kind of like punk and jazz, um, kind of, and reggae a little bit, kind of fused together. And so these guys did this song called Supertones, Strike Back, and we loved it so much. We're like, okay, that's gotta be the song that the titles are coming up on the screen of what the kids are expecting. So each and every day for 19 out of the 20 years, they had a chance to hear this. Uh, I'm excited. Okay, and then the kids, I mean, beach balls everywhere, kids going bananas, it's awesome. Now, when I play that, most of you, or maybe a lot of you, hear that, who've been a part of our church, that you're thinking about Spy Kids, you're thinking about the sights and sounds, but some of you actually aren't thinking about supertones or Spy Kids at all. What are you thinking about? That's right. Metallica, Creeping Death. (laughs) Of course. Listen to The Creeping Death by Metallica. Oh, man. Christians steal everything. <laughs> but this is actually not a case of Christians stealing something going, this is our song. It is. It's not. This is not a situation where Christians just ripped off. Like, I mean, we, Christians have been doing that forever. We rip off melody lines, and then we put theological words on top of it because it's common. It's, people understand the words. It's, it's, it's what it's done. But that's not what the supertones were actually doing. It has, it's much deeper than that. The supertones actually were, were actually lifting the beginning lick to creeping death on purpose. And it's because of the, the center guy there, Mar, uh, this guy, his name is Matt, Matt Murginsky. Matt Morginski grew up with two identifiers growing up as a kid. Number one, he loved Metallica. Number two, he was Jewish. He was Jewish, but he didn't believe in God. He went through all the rigmarole that his parents brought him through, all the like, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, the, all of the, the, the typical things, Passover and everything else that, that he and all the rest of his Jewish friends would go through, but he didn't believe. He had no connection with this God of his ancestors, but he loved Metallica. And Creeping Death was an awesome song where Metallica actually writes out and lays out the Passover. from the book of Exodus, exactly what's taking place with the Hebrews in Israel. I mean, it's like, you could take Creeping Death, and we could play it over an echo midweek, and it would work for curriculum, okay? Aminokah Church, our kids are raised by the Bible and Metallica. You know, it's, it's almost like that because it's like, it's, it is, it, look it up. Word for word, verse by verse, it's talking about the oppression of the Egyptian over, you know, the empire that's over them against this minority group of Hebrews and how the creeping death, the angel of death actually comes over and brings retribution that this minority powerless group could not do, that God alone could pull off. Metallica! And so like so Matt grows up, and he's like, oh, it's so cool. I've got a connection with Metallica that connects both my historical roots in religion that I don't believe with, with the Passover and the Exodus, and, and, and the fact that I love this music. And then Matt gets introduced to Jesus. And when he gets introduced to Jesus, all of a sudden something happens. He doesn't find himself kicking his Hebrew roots to the curb. In fact, all throughout the Supertones music, you find his lyrics referencing back to key points of the Old Testament. But he doesn't stop in the Old Testament. With Jesus, he now sees everything that he actually was skeptical about in the Old Testament through a different lens, and it consumes him. One of the reasons I love the music is that it's peppy, and it's awesome, and it, it, play it on the way home. It's awesome. It's awesome. But the key thing about it is that you can see this guy who was once just a total skeptic of any religion, let alone his Hebrew religion, saying, but look now. I mean, look, look, look what I have now in Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. The author of, author of Hebrews is saying, I'm not asking you to kick your Hebrew heritage to, this, to the curb. I'm just wanting you to finish the sentence. There's not a period at the end of the Old Testament. It continued. And all of a sudden with Jesus, we see the fulfillment of what everything in the Old Testament was leading towards. And the effect of that in us is it consumes us. What consumes you? Like, honestly, if we, were, if, we, if we went through and everyone had a chance to be honest, some of us, we just got back to school, and so what consumes us is the fact that, you know, we're thinking about our class loads, or teachers, or what teachers we hate, seeing our friends again, being a part of sports, or extracurriculars, that's all, like, on our, our grid. Some of us were thinking about our work, like right now, like you're happy that you're here because you're not at work, but but tomorrow you have to go to work, and the stress and the drama at work is something that's on your mind. Some of you have just been killing it lately. Things are going great, and what consumes you is like, I think this is as good as it gets, and you're probably right. Because also, and then that's going to start to consume you, right? Relational, vocational, interpersonal, psychological, we have all this stuff. We get consumed by that. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, all those things are legitimate. They're things that tax us, that they bring us down. But the reason it doesn't destroy us is because we have this reality that consumes us that's greater than any one of these individual or combined realities that we're struggling through right now. The author of Hebrews brings his listeners to two mountains, to two promises, to two pictures, and then two right responses to what do we do now? Like, how are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? So first off, he brings them to two mountains. The first mountain is Mount Sinai. That first section there where he's talking about Moses and the people being freaked out and dooming. that's Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is not some place, it's not a reoccurring character in the Bible as far as its location going back to it. It's like in Exodus 19 through 24, it's about it. Zion, however... Totally all over the place. In fact, it's before Mount Sinai. You have Abraham, who's, who's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, his only son. And God stops him and says, no, I've provided a sacrifice. That's, that's Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place where Jerusalem gets founded. The city of David, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is also the same mountain range, just a, just a mile or two up, where you have Calvary. Where actually, God didn't spare his only son, but his son became the sacrifice That's where Jesus was crucified. So Mount Zion is key. You get to the end of the Bible, in fact, and it talks about how the new Jerusalem, uh, Zion coming down out of heaven, coming down out of the sky and restoring the earth to make all things new. So Mount Zion plays a huge role. So when the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, you've got a choice, Sinai, which is huge important to us as Jewish people, or Zion, the thing that finished the sentence. And in doing that, he shows them the, the difference between the two promises or the two covenants. One's old covenant, one's new. One's the old promise, and then the other's the new. The old promise is this, obediently follow God's law and you'll be delivered. Remember Mount Sinai, that's where, where, where Moses got the Ten Commandments and then all the other 600-something other laws that explains the Ten Commandments. Lots of laws. Lots of understanding what God wants for us and everything else. In a lot of ways, we've talked about this before, that was a major perk because people are like, lots of people don't know what their God expects. We do. We're serving the one true God and we get it. That's huge, but at the same time, when you understand the rules, some of us operate in such a way like when you're driving, um, you kind of like inadvertently deflect your eyes from the speed limit so that when you get pulled over, you're like, I didn't, was that posted? 25 over, I didn't even realize, right? And and sometimes the, the fact that it's right there, when we see it, we know that we're driving condemned. Yeah, I'm 10 over. 10 plus 10 over. I'm 10 over. You know, and, and that's that type of thing. Mount Sinai, the promise was if you follow this completely, you're going to be delivered. The problem is no one can do that. In fact, it, it, scripture doesn't censor out the fact that people were disobeying that very covenant, that very promise right from the get-go. From the get-go, they're already in a deficit, which leads us to the promise of Zion. The promise of Zion is this. Because you can't do it, because you couldn't pull it off, trust in Christ's work for you who perfectly fulfilled the law and you'll be delivered. God gave you an expectation so you understood the way that you were crafted to be, live and the way that you were created to, to, to operate. He didn't do that. So instead of sending you out, God made a way to bring you close in Mount Zion. Sinai, Mount Zion. Sinai is, is this is reality, this promise stuck in our guilt. Which brings us to that really bizarre end of the passage I read to you. In verse uh, 23 and 24, he says this. You have not come, or you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of righteousness made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant or a new promise, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, weird, bizarre. What's sprinkled blood? The sprinkled blood was what, what, when a person had sinned against God. There was a sacrifice that was made, and that sacrifice of that animal, the blood was sprinkled on the altar. And it didn't, it didn't eradicate their sin. It just covered it over. It's like it's like almost like we're just going to put a, a pin in this until it can be dealt with later. But you can go away knowing that you've, you've, you've put your trust in God's ability to cover over this. But it's not dealt with yet this animal didn't do anything. It's like an innocent sacrifice. It's not a a perfect sacrifice for what you've done, but we're going to put a pin in it. That's the sprinkled blood. What the author of Hebrews is saying is the sprinkled blood of Jesus, who is the sacrificial lamb, scripture says, speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Blood of Abel. What? You guys remember like way back in the beginning of the Bible, you got two brothers, Cain and Abel, and, and Cain just gets super frustrated with his brother Abel and he kills him And anyone with a sibling's like, yeah, yeah, I get that. That that happened. And and it wasn't because he was like, you know, playing too many violent video games or watching too many Tarantino films. He just like got ticked off and he picks up a rock, (coughs) kills Abel. Abel dies. First murder in history happens. And scripture talks about the blood of the dead brother going into the ground and the ground actually crying out, you know, figuratively speaking, crying out for justice. This is wrong. You took a life. You you killed one of God's creations. You killed one of God's image bearers. You did this. And so why is it saying that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel? Well, this is why. Because Abel's blood called out for justice against sin, exposing Cain's deserved guilt, which is good because Cain was guilty. Is Is that good news for Cain? No. Cain's like, well, that's who I am, I guess. My identifier from here on out is I'm the first murderer I killed my brother, and I'm guilty. And that's what Abel's blood calls out. I'm calling it out. You're wrong. You were wrong when you did it. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're guilty. That's what Abel's blood says. Why is Jesus' blood better? Jesus' blood cries out for justice as well against sin, but exposes our undeserved innocence. And this is bizarre. This is where it gets weird. Cain really did kill his brother, and he deserved to be guilty. So justice had to be answered for that. When we sin, we really are guilty. And justice needs to be answered for that. But Jesus steps in the way. And Jesus says, yes, justice, consequences, wrath of God, all that, yes. But the promise of Zion is this. I take all of that and I bring it upon myself so that when God sees you, you're innocent. You're not guilty. Which you know, brings us to the, the reality of, of Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. Which of those two promises are you consumed by? Are you consumed by the fact, I can't believe it. I'm innocent in God's eyes. This is amazing. Like I'm like walking like clean slate. Every single day I feel like the liberation of it's not on me. I, did, I know I did that stuff. That stuff had consequences in everyday life. But there's this weird liberation. And it's like the person that matters most in my life isn't holding it against me. And everyone else holds stuff against me but God. He matters most. So like, there's like this, liber- is that, is that what you're consumed by? That promise? Or are you consumed by Sinai? Your guilt. When you think of yourself and you can blame it on the church you grew up in. Man, I just got such a guilty conscience, but it's us. We all do it. We all have guilty consciences. Like we all like look at the expectation of this world from God's eyes and others' eyes. And we're like, I don't meet that. I feel inept. I feel insecure. And so whenever I'm feeling that, i got to do something to make myself a little bit more whole. i got to work a little bit harder to be a little bit more successful or get a little bit grades or get people to like me or go out with me. i be—I got to be the best athlete or something so that I can overwhelm the fact that when I'm looking at the fact that I'm guilty, I feel shamed. I feel, I feel like I'm incomplete. Something's missing. That's Sinai living. That's like just the reality of our, our incompleteness, missing out on what the promise of Zion is. That's why the two promises are there. There's also two pictures. And and the picture that we have uh, that he uses, the author of Hebrews is almost like one of those people, and maybe this is you, or it's been you in the past, where you're like, yeah, I just, I don't like the God of this part of the Bible. Really like the God of this part of the Bible. This part of God, this God in this part of the Bible, angry, wrathful, people die. This part of the Bible, Jesus loves people. Let's go with that God. And it almost feels like he's saying that. He's not, but it feels like he's saying that when he's talking about these two pictures. The words that he uses to describe the mountain, Mount Sinai, where where the Ten Commandments were given, he uses these words, darkness, gloom, storm, burning, death, fear. Like, if that was a restaurant, you would not go there. Like, maybe the darkness, like, I like ambient light, but like, yeah, man, that place is, like, freaky scary. Like, it's messed up. Like, seriously, gloom and darkness and fear, I'm going back next Tuesday. It's going to be amazing. No, no it's like, no one's about that. It's, it's, he's describing an unattractive scenario. I mean, um, when one person was giving a, a sermon on this, he actually used this picture. And he said, this is what, this is like a, a depiction of Mount Sinai, what the people from the ground were l- looking at. When they were looking at Moses interacting with God, the inter, the, what's described is the fire and the smoke and the terror. And it's something that freaks the people out. And they said, then this is a painting of that. But this is not a painting of that. This is a painting actually of J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, and this is uh, Mordor. This is, uh, the, the, this is the Mount Doom up from Mordor. You guys familiar with this? Okay, let me speak nerd to those who aren't. What, what J.R.R. Tolkien did back in the 50s, he was a Christian, um, but he, he insisted, my work is not supposed to be an analogy for faith, which is, that's cool. His buddy C.S. Lewis, he said, oh, my work is an analogy for faith. But Tolkien was a little bit more like, no, it's just fantasy, It's just, just go with it. But the interesting thing about Sinai and doom is that there is a, a parallel. And this is it. In the, in the, the trilogy, you've got um, the Dark Lord Sauron forging in the lava of Mount Doom this ring, the one ring to rule them all. And the thing that we pick up about this ring is that it's got some pretty cool powers, but it also has the capacity to turn you into the worst version of yourself. It's like Facebook. And what it, what it, what it caused it, and everyone who actually put it on, it consumes them To the point where it takes a person from a a typical human being to a withered person like Gollum. Whether it's human or a troll or a dwarf, whoever puts this on, it consumes them and turns them into the worst creature version of themselves so they don't even reflect their original form. And so the whole book series is about, we got to destroy the ring. And so it's put in the hands of Frodo, who's going to take this throughout the whole series of books, and like I'm talking lots and lots of pages of reading, or if you watch the movies, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of Peter Jackson film, before you get to the end, when Frodo is going to take this and chuck it into the lava where it came from to destroy it. And he gets up there and he's, and he's ready to do it. He comes right to the cracks of doom to throw the ring into the lava to destroy it. And he makes the decision, what am I doing? Why would I destroy this? and he takes the very thing that causes the worst version of him and everyone else in in creation, and he takes it back, and he puts it on his finger. Depicting amazingly that the very thing that can destroy all of us causes the worst version of ourselves, sin, it's something that as much as we want to deal with it on our own, we can't. We're dead in our sin. We're powerless over it. Personally, you can try to get yourself better in a lot of ways, shape, or form, that's great, but sin, you can't deal with it. And and he decides to take it back, and and, um, one online description of that scene says this. All of a sudden, Gollum, you know, his arch nemesis, appears. Gollum, who is reduced to this ugly, horrible creature from the version he once was because of the ring, Gollum suddenly appears. He struggles with Frodo and bites off Frodo's finger with the ring still on it. Celebrating wildly, Gollum loses his footing and falls into the fire, taking the ring with him. I've just totally spoiled a 60-year-old plot line, so you're welcome. When the ring is destroyed, Sauron loses his power forever. All he created collapses. And the armies, his armies, are thrown into such disarray that Aragorn's forces emerge victorious. The thing that happens at Sinai is we have a picture of our guilt. We have a picture of our guilt. The power over sin. It's like a constant reminder but there's a different picture, and the picture of the author of Hebrews, when he's describing Mount Zion, he's using the words life, joyful, made perfect, better. It's depicting the fact that what we were powerless to overcome in the thing that's showcasing our guilt, Zion accomplished in what Jesus did. John 3:16. if you were in church for three minutes, you probably have this memorized. But listen to the whole thing. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son because we could take care of our sin on our own. Because with enough gumption and moral living, you can actually deal with what you've done in the past. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What picture of God do we have here? He continues. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Why shouldn't he? I mean, he should. we, We stand condemned. Jesus did not come into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to rescue the world through him. So you've got two pictures, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Which one are you consumed by? You probably know which of the two you're consumed by, how much you talk about your faith. That's not intended to be in your face, but take it if it is. If you're someone that's like, yeah, no, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Like, I don't want to tell people at school that I'm a Christian because like, I don't want to be judged for that. Or I don't want to tell people that I work with that I'm a Christian because they know some of the messed up stuff that I've done and they'll call me a hypocrite or a holy roller or something. Well, I don't want to tell like some of my neighbors that I'm a Christian because they're going to assume, well, the, you know, that I'm going to be like the, one, of those, one of those Christians. And I just, I just don't, that's not something that I want to depict. Sometimes if we're honest, however, I think that the reason that we don't talk about our faith with other people is because we're living at Sinai. We don't want the world to think of us following this judgmental, harsh, do's and don'ts, black and white, rules, angry, gloom God. And so we're not going to talk about God because we don't want them to think that he's Mount Sinai God. And if we're honest, there might be something inside of us that actually believes that might be true. The author of Hebrews says, it ain't. This is not the end of the story. This is the reflection of our guilt that Jesus came to satisfy on Zion. That picture is one that's joyful. Do your friends see that? Do the people you work with see any glimmer of hope and joy that comes from the reality of, this is my reality, not that? This is, there's two right responses to this um, that he gives in the last couple of verses in 25 to 27. First is reverent reception. He puts it out there. Look, I brought you up to this point. You've got a choice. Which are you going to choose? Which of these two mountains is going to be your consuming definer? Which of these two realities is going to be what you are living and fleshing out? And, and, he, and his call is to make the choice to receive the work of Jesus. Go Zion. It says this, verse 25. See to it that none of you refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned him on earth, how much less will we, if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven... At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I shall shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken is, created things so that what cannot be shaken may remain. The shaking and the reality of of the, the seismic epochal change that Sinai brought in, there's going to be another one, and that is in the final judgment. And the final judgment is the reality that we are going to be held accountable on whether or not we received the forgiveness and sanctification of Jesus or not that we received the redemption of Jesus or not that John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life that God did not come into the world to judge the world but to, but to seek and save the lost it's followed by verse 18 which says this whoever believes in him is not condemned that's good news But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. He's saying, and this passage is saying, you, there's a choice here. Which are you choosing? Are you choosing to receive his forgiveness or are you choosing to have arms off? Now, I told told 8 a.m. that, listen, most of the people at 8 a.m. I believe are believers because you have to be if you're going to be at 8 (laughs) a.m. That's like, but maybe not. 9 30, it's, it's, it's a toss up, guys. I mean, this is you still have a chance to sleep in. But I have to ask you I mean, I, everyone in this room, I don't know. I don't know all of you. I don't know if you're redeemed. I don't know if you've ever trusted Jesus to forgive your sins, or if you've just done church, or if this is your first time here, and you're just like, I, I'm just getting my toes in the water. With this. I have no clue. Scripture calls you to actually put your trust in your ability to self justify yourself. And people don't have to be religious to do this. They can deal with their guilt by dipping into some type of addiction that, that's, that takes them away or some type of, of power control or some type of, if I just fill myself up with enough busyness, I can overwhelm this. But scripture says, stop being self-justifying. Recognize your distance from God and trust in him. Don't stand condemned. Receive and experience life. Now, here's the cool thing. Because of that, all of a sudden we don't—we no longer look at Sinai as this doom and gloom God, but we see it as a part of a greater story. You see, because the people—they even Moses—he could not see; he couldn't look face to face with God. There couldn't be any of that because God's holiness and man's unholiness is a disconnect. It's like poison. It's like distance. My son Rylan is my third-born son, and um, when when he was born, we were so excited that he came into the earth, and and then because we're parents, and, and then, like, we, we decided, like, just to, as we're raising him up, you know, we realized that he was, after breakfast, he was having a hard time breathing, and uh, he would just, and his face would start to get puffy. Now, the first thought to my mind was, and when I talked to people, like, Julie and I were like, you know, what's going on? They're like, well, he might be allergic to something, like, maybe something that you're feeding him, he's allergic to, and I'm like, food allergies, that's a myth. And so we had like helicopter parents make up about like, they read something on WebMD and like, oh, I can't have, and so then all of a sudden we can't bring snacks to school and but you know, that, it's a total myth. And they're like, well, maybe you should have him checked out. And we're like, no. And so we're just like, you know, buttering peanut butter toast and giving it to our son and, and, and he's just eating it and like, I can't, I can't, I. and it's, you know, that type of thing. And we're like, this is so weird. Maybe we should give him tested. So we get him tested and it, the thing comes back and says, oh yeah, he's got a really high tree nut allergy and peanut allergy. I said, wait, peanut allergy? And they said, yeah. I said, that's a thing? <laughs> yes. I mean, we've been poisoning our... Julie's been poisoning our son all this time? <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, so is this like a type of situation we have got to put a, in a bubble? Like, what's... And they're like, no, no, he can actually be in the same room with peanut. I'm like, because peanuts are in everything. Like, they are. He can't have any of that. He can be in the same space, but he can't have any of that. And so, so sure enough, um, we, we take peanuts out of his, his diet. And that's awful, man, because everything good has peanuts in it and peanut butter in it. God made peanut butter. It's just like, and George Washington Carver, but it's like just so, so good. And I, and so he, and he felt that he loved peanut butter. He would watch his siblings eat their peanut butter jelly sandwich and be at school and see people eating peanut Reese's peanut butter cups, Reese's peanut butter cups, folks. Every Halloween, we had to take out of the bag, the Reese's peanut butter cups, and I had to eat them <laughs> because he couldn't. It's poison to him. He could die, go into anaphylactic shock. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a giver. And so what, what, what ended up happening was years go by, and I just remember him like just being so sad about it. Like he goes, he says, Dad, Mom, do you think in heaven, do you think in heaven I could eat peanut butter? Because we, we're Christians and we know that God loves peanut butter, we're like, yes, yes. <laughs> See why, and, but we're going to say, as Christians, because God promises that he's going to make all things new, one of the things he makes new is our body. And so all these limitations we have or setbacks we have, those are not going to be reality in eternity. And, and so we told him that. And again, a couple years go by, and we decide to just have him rechecked. And as we have him rechecked, all of a sudden, Julie and I get the mail back, and it says that Rylan is no longer allergic to peanuts, and I was picking him up from school that day. So I drive on over, and I pick him up. I'm like, hey, man, how's school? And he's like, oh, it's good, and he, he's about to sit down in the back seat, and there's like something. He's like, oh, and he pulls it out, and it's like a Reese's peanut butter cup case. And he's like, oh. I'm like, hey, why don't you have one of those? And he's like, yeah, but I, are you? I'm like, and he opens that beautiful orange plastic paper (laughs) and takes out that beautiful piece of engineering and takes it out and closes his eyes as he takes the first bite in years, tasting the thing that was previously poison to him and enjoying it the way it was always intended to be enjoyed. Was the peanut butter evil? No, but to my son, it was poison. He had an allergic reaction to it. He could not be close to it. He couldn't ingest it. But in that moment, all things were made right. The holiness of God, we can't be in the same presence. It'll kill us. His holiness isn't bad. It isn't evil. Mount Doom isn't Mount Doom except for the fact that to us, we have an aversion to it because of our unholiness that Jesus satisfies on Mount Zion. Amen? That's huge. Have you received that? Have you received that? Or is the disconnect between you and God still poison, and that'll carry on into eternity? Not only do we need to reverently receive But we also need to have reverent revelry. Revelry is another word for just like a a big party. Uh, A lot of times it's a big party to the point of intoxication. Total like bananas crazy party. But the truth is, is that there's a celebration that Christians should be defined by and a joy within that should be defining and motivating our everyday when we wake up in the midst of all the drama we have, in the midst of all the chaos that's in our life, physically, everything else, that we still have this joy that's driving us because we have this understanding of our current position Mike Iaconelli, um, who who was a youth pastor guru, and he he passed away in the early 2000s, one of the things that he said that was so cool, or that was so true at least, he said that Christians, the biggest problems within Christianity, or the biggest threats to Christianity, is not immorality, it's not music, it's not church divisions, it's not even some of the terrible things that we see in culture. One of the biggest threats to Christianity is dullness. We are living out practical atheism if we are living our Christian faith as dull, boring people because we are living in denial of Mount Zion. He said this um, in one of his books. I'm ready for a Christianity that ruins my life, that captures my heart and makes me uncomfortable. I want to be filled with an astonishment which is so captivating that I'm considered wild, un- unpredictable, and well, dangerous. Yes, I want to be dangerous to a dull and boring Religion. Theologian Guthrie, when talking about this passage in Hebrews, put it this way, to what are we calling people when we call them to our form of religion? Is it a place of dread? A place from which God seems remote and unapproachable? Or are we calling people to joy? When was the last time in your church or my church that someone from the outside could have mistaken what was taking place for a party because such joy and festivity permeated the event? I'm not suggesting that worship services be raucous, but that we should ask whether joy, real joy, is a product of people's encounter with God through our communities of faith. We're at a crossroads, we have a choice. Which picture, which mountain are we going to camp out on? Which are we going to let our life be consumed by? Jesus is the bridge to Zion. He is the holiness of God. He's the perfect record we couldn't keep. He's the perfect connection to the Father that we, we didn't have. And all of the offense against sin, all the rightful wrath of God against what we've done, he's got that too. But instead of passing it on to us, He obediently followed the will of the Father and took it upon himself. Jesus went through the punishment of Sinai to bring us to Zion. Are you there? And if you're there, if you've received that, is your life described with the joy therein? What if it did from this point on? One of the reasons that we take part in the Lord's table is to remind ourselves of that, because we have enough in our life to distract us from the joy that comes from Christ. We have enough questions, enough doubts, enough difficulties to make us just go, I don't even know if I believe anymore. When we come back to the table as Christians, we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. That is the reboot, the reset, the communion with God that we get a chance to celebrate alongside each other. If you're a Christian, just a moment, I'm gonna give you the opportunity to exit your rows on the left-hand side, to go on both sides of the table, to bring the the cup and the bread back, And spend some time in reflection. And then in just a moment, we'll take the bread and the cup together. Go ahead and do that right now.